Hey, welcome to Inside the Album. It's the podcast where we take a classic rock album and talk about mm -hmm. all the stories about the songs on that album, the recording of that album, and what was happening with the band, and just really getting to enjoy some of our favorite music. I'm Don Seckler. That's Tommy Hilkin. How's it going, Tom? It's going good, Don. Good to be with you, man, as usual. I have no yeah. idea who you are to my left, my right, but we're all good. <laughs> so I'd like to thank all the people who are listening and watching us on YouTube. Uh, we're nice. on every podcast platform out there. So Apple, Spotify, uh, the Google one, you know, the, anywhere you can get a podcast, you're going to find us. If you're new, welcome. And, and I hope you enjoy the next hour or so as we go through this great, great rock and roll album. We're going to be talking about the first album from Boston today. Ah. If you uh, would like to check us out, you could check out InsideTheAlbum.com. And on the website there, we have every episode of the podcast right on the homepage. There is a cool merch store, lots of fun. And we're also working with a charity. So tell us all about our charity connection, Tom. Well, nice, Don. And reason why we're doing Inside the Album is to get people some visibility for music for Mark is what we're doing is we're bringing music to the world through kids. So we're going to give musical instruments, musical lessons, wherever we can find it, where we can help kids. You know, you and I love music so much. It's been a big part of our lives and we want to see it continue with kids getting musical instruments and bringing real music to the world. Yeah. So if you have any instruments laying around, like we say in the basement, the attic, a closet somewhere, it hasn't been touched in years. Uh, reach out to us and we will repurpose that and make sure it gets into the hands of somebody to get their life started in music. Beautiful. Musicformark.com. Thanks, Don. Yes. All right. So here we are. We're talking about the first album by Boston. So, mm -hmm. you know, and we, wow. we say this a lot, but here's another record where every song was a hit. Yeah. Okay. It's not a long record. It's got uh, it's got it's got eight songs listed. There's actually nine songs because number three, foreplay, long time is actually put together into one song. Uh, but it's a super super interesting story. So we're going to talk about the band a little bit and who's in the band. Uh, but the really the driving force behind this band is Tom Schultz. So Tom is the main guy in the band and really played most of the instruments on the record. Mm -hmm. So he plays the guitar, he's doing acoustic guitars, electric guitars, he's doing the uh, keyboards, bass. Uh, the drums are the only thing that he really was not involved with. Uh, we had Brad Delp, who was uh, the singer on in the band and uh, also uh, let it uh, also plays a little bit of acoustic guitar. Uh, you've got Sib Hashian, I think it is. I'm not sure of the pronunciation, but he plays drums on all of the tracks except one, which is Rock and Roll Band. Then you have Jim Maceda, who, uh, or Jim Masdia, is Masdia, I guess it is, yeah. Then you have Jim Masdia, who plays drums on Rock and Roll Band. And actually, we'll talk about him a little bit and Tom. And, and he was very involved early on with the songs. And, and we'll, we'll delve into that a little bit deeper. And then there's a couple of other musicians. You've got uh, Barry Goudreau, who's played some guitar. And also uh, Frank Sheehan, who played bass on uh, a couple of the songs. So the album was released in August of 1976. And wow. so when we look at the charts, like in 76, 77, wow. it's kind of a mellow time in rock. So rock started kind of picking up in the early 70s, like we talked about with David Bowie last week. Yeah. And then the mid 70s, it kind of mellowed out a bit. Mm. So you had Frampton Comes Alive, which, you know, a rock record, but, you know, pretty middle of the road, not not hard rock at all. Right. Yeah. Uh, pretty much pop rock was a huge, and that was a huge, oh. huge album for, you know, especially for the teenage girls. They love Peter Frampton, right? So did I. <laughs> <laughs> now and, I think about that, dude, beyond huge, that album. Man, yeah. Right? And yeah. not only that, the radio airplay of that album was insane. You, you didn't even have to bother listening to the radio anymore. Right. Yeah. So you, was on. You, you, there was a few songs on there that just were, were dominant. Oh. Uh, then there was the Fleetwood Mac album, Fleetwood Mac, which was, I don't, was that the first album with, with McVie? I mean, with um, uh, Lindsey Buckingham and, and Stevie Nicks? 
I believe so. I think oh, rumors so. came out the next one after that. Rumors right? was the one after, yeah. So the yeah. first Fleetwood Mac album it had a couple of popular songs or hits, you know, that were were good, yeah. but it was not the Rumors album, which was just dom again another dominating album that came yeah, a little would, bit later. They were just coming together, yeah. And then also very popular at the time was the Dreamweaver by Gary White. <laughs> Gary Wright, yeah. Yeah. Oh, sure. Come on. So, uh, you know, wow. it, if you've never heard Dreamweaver, the song, <laughs> just Google it or, you know, on YouTube and listen oh. to it. It's so schmaltzy and, and awful. <laughs> Dude, but it's in your head and you're going. Mm -hmm. It is. I can't, I can't stop hearing Weaver. it now. <laughs> Weaver. Weaver. Yeah. So the landscape was... You know, from a rock perspective, it was pretty sucky at the time. You know, mm. there wasn't it wasn't a really groundbreaking time for a lot of bands. Um, so this record came out and just sold extremely well right out of the gate. Uh, broke sales records. It became the best-selling debut album in the USA at the time. Ended up selling 25 million records worldwide. Mm. That's an album. And one of the things, you know, beyond all the success on the charts and everything, one of the things that Boston is kind of um, attributed with is the kind of the this wave of produced rock sound. So this was a this album has a has a much different sound than anything that was else that was out at the time. So mm. it's a little hard to like in retrospect to go back and listen to it and you listen to it and you go, oh it sounds okay. It sounds pretty good. But for the time it was so highly produced and the sound was so precise. I, 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 that's like the uh, for lack of a better word. Um it it, it was this combination of studio technology and the concept that they had of making a big record with really crystal clear sound. And, you know, so that that whole produced sound, for lack of a yeah. better word, is re was really kind of groundbreaking. Like it, was, it was as close to technically perfect as you could get. Yeah. So it was a lot less about, hey, bang this out and, you know, wow. we're the Ramones and, you know, boom, 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 boom. And it was a lot right. more about... It was thought out and their the goal, Tom Schultz's goal was to make like this great sounding record. Uh, and so we're going to get into his history and you'll understand a little bit more about that. Why as we uh, as we talk about that. Awesome. Uh, so uh, Tom Schultz had had been he had studied classical piano in his childhood. And then he got involved in the music scene in Boston in the late 60s. So he started to write and he started to create demos in his apartment, you know, basement apartment that he had in Boston with Brad Delp, the singer. And so they're working on these songs and they had sent out, you know, uh, tapes to the record companies and received all these rejection letters from all the major companies <laughs> throughout like the early 70s. So they start in the late 60s, early 70s, they're sending out these demos, just getting, you know, working on this stuff and then getting rejected and rejected and rejected. And so all the way up until 1975 and then the demo got into the hands of epic records who ended up signing them so this was not an overnight thing by any stretch you know they were working on these songs and they had this kind of concept in in mind but they it it took them you know a solid almost 10 years before they they were able to get a record deal wow and uh, so take a look at the cover here. This is, you know, it's this kind of spaceship guitar. It's a very modern. This whole album is very, at the time, was very modern, forward thinking, very technical or very technological for technology at the time, recording technology. And so this cover, you know, is fairly iconic. People, you know, thought it was cool at the time. It's still kind of around. You see it, you know it instantly now. Um, but it's this whole spaceship guitar kind of concept. The old spaceship guitar concept. <laughs> so uh, Tom Schultz went to MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology, very good <laughs> school. And that's when he started writing music. So the guy was a really super, super smart guy. Got mm -hmm. a master's degree. And while at night he was playing keyboards and bands in the Boston bar and club scene. And that's how he... Uh, met up with uh, Jim Mesteda. And so the two of them started 
this whole kind of worked on this concept of this project where it was this crystal clear vocals, really kind of like bone crunching guitar sound. So they were really about the technical sound part of it. Um, and that definitely comes through as you listen to the record. Yeah, it's funny. It's really like sometimes you think about what you're talking about right now is some of this stuff was probably overthought, which puts so much pressure on them. And we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about that later on. Yeah, well, you know, and they're smart. So this guy's a super smart guy. He's a mechanical engineer. So he yeah. was working for Polaroid and doing product development for Polaroid. So he, <laughs> they're creating new technology at Polaroid. And so that's his mindset. Right. So these two guys put together, they, so with the money he was making at Polaroid, he spent it all on building a small studio in his basement. And it was literally like in a basement where this whole album was recorded. It's crazy. That's cool. That's great. <laughs> yeah. So they had a, uh, so going back to the, when they were going after the record companies, like 73, they had put together a, a six song demo tape. And so they were sending it out to every record company. It had the songs that are actually on the album. So it had more than a feeling, peace of mind, rock and roll band, something about you, hitch a ride. Uh, with a different title on the tape, and then Don't Be Afraid, which they actually ended up not using until the next album, which was Don't Look Back. They had been, you know, again, they're working on these songs for a long time. This was not an overnight, hey, let's go in the studio, knock this stuff out right now. This is, you know, these guys are, I think as a, an engineer, okay, they're very premeditated and logical, yeah. you know? And so music is actually very mathematic. And so people, generally people who play music and have high levels of skill, especially in, in more complicated music, generally have that math ability as well. That's, that's oh, a wow. fairly common thing. So you, you know, they, there was a lot of thought that went behind this. It wasn't like we've heard where they said, okay, let's just bang out a few songs and, and magic happen. But interesting, you said they had to submit six songs in today's world, right? how far we've come one song and you're a star <laughs> yeah yeah sometimes that happens <laughs> a lot of times now yeah <laughs> so in november of 1975 they actually got a group together because it was pretty much the two of them and they were getting you know guys to to play with them some of the people we've mentioned and they were playing under the name mother's milk and they they were able to play for um a group of executives in a boston warehouse that was also what Aerosmith was using as their practice facility. They got to do the, the kind of uh, performance and with with the executives, and that ended up helping them get that uh, contract. Uh, and their initial contract was ten albums over six years. Yeah, there's a big story behind that. But go ahead. <laughs> I'm sure we'll save that for another day. Unbelievable pressure and stress was put on them. By the record company. Yeah. And so, you know, the label wanted the, the band to go to Los Angeles and re-record the songs with a different producer. Tom Schultz didn't want to do that. He wanted to be in charge. And so they had this guy, John Boylan, who was a friend and or, or who came on board to kind of help manage the project. And he they had Boylan kind of run interference with the label and keep the label happy. One thing that Boylan did do was suggest that the band change the name from Mother's Milk to Boston, which, you know, uh, I don't know. Either way, I think is fine, but Boston is catchy. <laughs> yeah, it works. Yeah. So the studio in the basement, you know, and it's just a it's really just a guy's basement. So it's not like, you know, when I say studio, it's just because they recorded it there, but it's really the guy's basement. It was so small. They had to move stuff out of there, out of the room to set up the drums. <laughs> I could just imagine the sound, though. I would have loved to have been there. <laughs> yeah, crazy, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, interesting thing, too. So uh, when Boylan was working with them, he arranged for uh, Delp, the singer, to have a custom-made Taylor acoustic guitar for thousands of dollars, and they charged that to the album budget. Tom Schultz recorded like uh more than a feeling with a hundred dollar yamaha acoustic guitar <laughs> <laughs> there you go and you know is so there is a big difference between expensive guitars and inexpensive guitars 
but it just goes to show you that you can make music sound great with almost almost any instrument you know it's more about the playing and the production and, and all those sort of things yeah once it's once it's produced you can do just about anything with it so again they were kind of you know trying to put this ruse over on on the uh record company and they so what they did was they sent the the band to LA to go and record one song while Tom Schultz was basically working on everything else in the back in Boston in their in his basement studio. Mm. So they kind of, you know, did that as a smokescreen to say to the record company, okay, we're doing this, we're doing this, but they weren't really <laughs> doing it. They were back in Boston recording the whole thing. So Tom Schultz wrote or co-wrote every song on the on the album, with the exception of Let Me Take You Home Tonight, which was written by Brad Delp, the singer. And he pretty much played uh, all of the instruments and recorded and engineered all the tracks. You know, so he focused on this sound where they wanted big, giant, melodic hooks and very heavy, classically inspired guitar parts. So he definitely, you know, they had this concept of what they wanted to do and they followed through on it. Yeah. Killer album. It worked. Yeah, for sure. All right. So let's dive into the album yeah. here. We're going to start off with the lead track, which is probably their most famous song, um, More Than a Feeling. And kind of a bit of a fade in here on the opening guitar part on the $100 Yamaha acoustic. <laughs> They definitely followed the don't bore us, get to the chorus part the theory, right? Like the first minute, you, they got like one verse, that. bam, right into the chorus. It's just so amazing. And see, it's hard to describe to people who weren't around at the time, but the sound of this album, it's it's so, so different. It's so much clearer. It's so much crisper. You, you feel like you're there in the room almost with them. And that wasn't something that was easy to achieve. And most bands hadn't done that in the past. This is amazing, but man, you were just so prolific. Don't bore us. Get to the chorus. <laughs> you never heard that before? <laughs> uh, just, I just got educated. Look at, that was beautiful. Nice. Or forget the shit, get to the hits. <laughs> <laughs> That's our album. Yeah. So uh, Tom Schultz wrote this song. Uh, it's about a guy who wakes up with the blahs, turns on the music, gets lost in uh, kind of dreaming of this days with Marianne. So he said that it was written about a fantasy event, but it's one of that almost everybody can identify with somebody uh, like of losing somebody that was important to them and the music taking them back to that time. Yeah. But it turns out that Marianne was a real person. Ah. So Tom said she was his older first cousin who I had a crush on when I was 10. And I ran into her many, many years later, and she was annoyed at me for mentioning that uh, she was my <laughs> older cousin. <laughs> yeah, that's not, especially in the Northeast. <laughs> so that's interesting that, uh, you know, it was a little bit of a kid crush that he had. Yeah. You and, know what's you know what's great about this? We're sitting here, you know, and, uh, you know, you and I, we always talk music. We just love it so much. But you think about what a great voice and that riff can just do. We always talk about that. It's those two riff, things. Right? Yeah, it's that the voices. Brad Delp's voice is amazing. Oh, and amazing. then the riff comes in. And that guitar in. riff. Yeah. It's just crazy Let's good. Iconic. Iconic. Yeah, iconic. legendary for sure. So, <laughs> Schultz. Schultz definitely worked on this. He worked on this song for over five years. 
So again, this is not stuff that came together quickly. Five years. But again, this guy's an engineer. You know, he goes through a process. He's got steps. He's doing things in order. He's sticking with it. He's continuing to work it until he solves the problem and gets what he wants to get. It's a total engineer mindset, right? Yeah, that drives you a little crazy. You know what? You know, uh, done is better than perfect. I, I truly believe that, especially when it comes to music. Yeah, you know, I, I I agree with you for the most part. And but this is just, you know, this one, I think it paid off. You know, it yeah. definitely was there. And this is his creative process. We, who are we to say? Don't get well, exactly. That's the other side of it is that it's everybody's has a different process. Yeah, but five years is a long time. It is a long time. <laughs> So he was also inspired by uh, Walk Away Renee. So that heart tugging mood, you know, of, of Walk Away Renee by the left banks. Um, that That's kind of what he used as an inspiration for this song. That's a great song. Yeah. And the Four Tops sang that as well. Just yeah, exactly. I'm a fountain of knowledge, Don. <laughs> so on this track, uh, uh, Sib Hashian played the drums, but Tom Schultz played every other instrument on the track. And there's a <laughs> lot of stuff on these songs. So it's not just a guitar and drums and bass. There's keyboards, there's some horns in there and stuff. So, uh, you know, there's a lot going on, but he was able to play all of these different instruments. I would like to have a conversation with Tom Schultz. <laughs> <laughs> see he took uh he took a leave of absence from polaroid to complete the album but when he be- he went back to work after it was released and disco was big so he wasn't sure that a rock record would would get an audience wow so he was very excited when co-workers would then call him and say hey i just heard more than a feeling on the radio <laughs> and he said that after it happened a few times he was confident enough to quit his job <laughs> oh good for him I take a leave of absence. <laughs> yeah. I ain't losing my paycheck. Well, but he, at the time it was Polaroid. He's a mechanical engineer. He's probably making a decent amount of money, you know? Oh yeah. Hang that on. Hang good, on tight. It was Hang enough on. to build a studio. <laughs> yeah. All right. So let's move on to track number two. This one is peace of mind. Huh. Again, a great riff, right? Yes. So the other thing, and you really hear it on this song, is the sound of those guitars. And so, you know, this again is something that was completely unique. You know, the stuff that he was doing in his basement was was kind of groundbreaking. And and a lot of what he's known for now is that technology that he used in these effects and things that to get these kind of sounds that nobody had really gotten before. Yeah, it's great sound. Now yes. you think about what a great album. My God. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So this one, this song is about finding your passion. And, uh, you know, he, he kind of seems to sympathize with people who are working for companies and don't feel fulfilled. Uh, it was a third single from the Boston album. Uh, the other two were More Than a Feeling and Long Time. And they said they could have released more singles, but they didn't have to because rock radio was playing every song. <laughs> on the album you know so they didn't have to push a yeah. single 
<laughs> so it just got, it was just getting played so it was crazy and like we said it went all, all on to in america it sold i think 17 million and and like 25 million worldwide you know you just got me thinking about the 70s you know and why these these hits right the 70s had a lot of disco was still mixed in there right yeah but pop songs were huge in the 70s you know, I mean, literally, they like like the "Have a Nice Day" seventies, Helen Reddy, all right, that kind of stuff. Right. You, huge music was all over the place in the seventies. Yeah, it really was, and I think that this, even though it's seventy six, this kind of leans towards like what was going to happen in the eighties with all the techno, uh, you know, the like the new wave and the and the more use of the synthesizers and more of a a digital sound as opposed right. to an analog one. Um, but again, this is kind of like this, these sounds were, were completely unique for the time. Yeah. They were new. Yeah. So, uh, the next one, the next track is number three. And, and so it's two songs together foreplay slash long time. So let's take a listen to that. So I, I just want to pause this here for a second, and then I'm going to jump ahead to the next section. But mm -hmm. th so this to me, there's a lot of like, it's a lot of like ELP, right? Nah. It's kind of classical, it's kind of progressive, but it's not. <laughs> I, I just wrote it down. You know, I, uh, I wrote down ELP and yes. Yeah, yeah. That's so That's who I was seeing back in the day then, you know what I mean? So, yeah, yeah, exactly. And those were, you know, 72, 73, 74. That's what you, there was a lot of that, uh, that progressive music. So the first part is... You know, it's a, it's a sexual reference, a foreplay, and it's based around that Hammond organ riff. So it's that kind of very classical riff, and then the guitars come in and kind of rock it up a little bit. All right, so let's take a listen to the uh, the other part of this, which is long time, the beginning of that. This comes in around two ten or so. I'm holding on. Keep holding. <laughs> It's a long foreplay. <laughs> That's what she said. Two minutes of foreplay. Are you kidding? <laughs> Two thirty. <laughs> Now here we're back to the Boston rock with that always with the solo at the beginning, right? The opening riff is that yeah. lead riff. Great riff. Still that organ in the background there. Another great riff, right?
So, uh, again, a great, great, amazing riffs. And, you know, mm. a lot of times with the more progressive artists, the riffs aren't as strong. You know what I mean? Like, this is still a rock riff, you know? Sure. It's still that rock guitar riff, which sometimes gets lost in, like, a, a Yes or ELP type of uh, King Crimson type of music. Um, but the whole, so this whole thing runs about 747 and long time was issued as a separate single uh, that only ran three minutes and three seconds. So perfect for radio. And, you know, so that's why they chopped that off and, and released it as a separate single. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Now you got me thinking about it. If you sit back and listen to this, you can hear the creativity in the studio. Like it, it's truly studio music. Even the guitar riffs, they're great, but they just seem a little not like so natural riffs. Right. Like they're more thought out. They're more thought out, more planned, rather than yeah. just hey, this is what hit me. So it's you, very methodical. Yeah, this whole record is very methodical. You you just got me thinking about it as I listen to those riffs and the music. It's like it's scientifically put together to be a yeah. great song. That's, yeah. It's kind of interesting. It's a great way to look at it. Yeah. And that's, again, back to that engineer brain, right? So it's very organized. It's very logical. It's very structured. It's very do A, get B, do, you know, A, B, C, D. It's always steps. It's organized. I like how you just say, do I know? Look who you're talking to. No, I don't know. <laughs> no, you don't know at all. <laughs> Instruction and organized. <laughs> So uh, Foreplay was actually the first song that Tom wrote for Boston. So he wrote it in 1969 when he was studying at MIT and recorded it in 71. Oh, there you go. Uh, with Jim Mastia. Yeah. And, and they they recorded it in Jim's basement. And over, over the next few years, Schultz made various different demo recordings of this song and you know so it evolved over time a little bit but it was something that he had around for for a long time well that's where the influence now that you look at it's the way back then now you can see the the elp ds you know i don't know what kind of music he listened to but obviously he must have heard some of it yeah sure sure definitely and he was classically trained at piano so that has a factor as well because that progressive music is often close to classical music amazing all right all right. You know, right away, these guys were playing arenas. Their debut album was certified platinum by March of 77. So the album was released in August. August. And then by March, it was already, a, you know, a huge, huge seller. Yeah. For some reason, and I mean, like you said, maybe it was the music of the time or just the time period itself. But, you know, they really, really were just like they blew up out of nowhere. This album just blew up. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, again, it was so different. It was such a different sound. And it was that record. It was so I remember I had a Walkman with the original Sony Walkman, the original with the little (laughs) orange headphones. And it was one of those tapes that you put on and you're like, holy cow, in the headphones, this is insane how good it sounds. Yeah. So I, you know, the production values, I think, had a lot to do with it. Plus, the riffs are catchy. The songs are catchy. It's, you know, it's fun, easy. It's not complicated. There's no, you know, where the Ziggy Stardust, where we we talked about last week, has a bit of a story going through it. This is very surfacey. It's very, in terms of the stories, it's easy to understand. It's, hey, I woke up this morning and I remember this girl. It's, you know, uh, I'm going on the road with my rock and roll band. It's not, there's no complications here in terms of the stories. So it makes it, I think, a little bit more accessible. Yeah, it works. All right. So let's move on to track number four. This one is Rock and Roll Band. Mm. Again, another killer riff. (laughs) Right out of the gate. There you go. With that space.
So you know what I hear in this? I hear Aerosmith. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Good right? Night. That riff, that guitar yeah. riff. It sounds like, you know, it's a little... It's a little less dirty than an Aerosmith riff, you know, right. not like yeah. not the lyrics, but the actual riff, like an Aerosmith riff always has a little grungy, you know, to it. And this is a little bit more middle of the road, but I can hear that in the background there. There you go. Well, you know what? We always talk about who influences who, right? Yeah. If you're in Boston, chances are you know about Aerosmith. Right, exactly. And, yeah. you know, so th this song tells the story of a Boston band, a rock band playing their dues, you know, busking, sleeping in cars, playing the bar circuit. Eventually they get a big break with a record company guy and signs them into a deal. But it's the exact opposite story of the band which is basically Tom Schultz in his basement recording this stuff, <laughs> you know? So uh, a lot of people assume that it was the story of the band Boston because the lyrics are in first person and they're singing about being from Boston. Right. That's not the case at all. Oh, see, I would have thought it was about them. Yeah. So uh, interesting, but good, great, great song. So uh, let's move on. We're going to hit song number five. And this one is Smokin'. <laughs> hey, guitar riff. Yeah. <laughs> Little boogie woogie, right? Oh, yeah. And again, we're at, you know we're at forty five seconds. We're already through the first the first chorus. <laughs> so these guys, they're not wasting any time. They're getting right to the meat of the song. Yeah. Uh, but again, they made songs. Yep. Great, great riff. And uh, you know, a song is about having a good time, listening to music. Some people interpreted it as being about pot because it's keep on lines like keep on token. The song is also four minutes and 20 seconds long, which is the 420 thing is a pot smoking thing. Ah, so, how do you, you know, know that? I, I researched this. Good boy. <laughs> on the internet. That's the, that's the answer I was looking for. <laughs> so I don't know if that's their intention. It was the mid seventies. Everybody smoked weed. I, who knows? <laughs> uh, but all in all, great song. And these are, you know, these are great. These are great driving songs, right? These are great uh, songs to have on your car. You got the windows open. It's a spring day and you're cranking down the highway. Just so much, so much fun. So I don't know which song came out first. To tell you the truth. I'm, I'm just here to hang out with you, but uh, fl <laughs> flirting with disaster. You know, another great song with a great oh, yeah. guitar riff. And this song reminds me a lot of Flirting with Disaster. Similar, right? Yeah, similar yeah. kind of riff to it. Yeah, oh, yeah. I definitely oh, feel yeah. that. And but this is and this is a straight boogie woogie song. So, yeah. you know, any any song that's the you know, you take the guitars away and put in a piano in there and you, you're gonna be in a roadhouse, you know. It's a real real pretty straightforward uh, rock and roll song. So true. It was, uh, the song was originally called Shaken and <laughs> they played it with, uh, with mother's milk in that way. So they, they had a demo of the song, but by the time they got to recording it for the Boston album, it became smoking. So again, he's got these songs and they're working on them over and over and over again. So this is again, a guy who's spending a lot of time reworking these songs and you know, the results are spectacular. So I can't complain about that. Yeah, and then they saved the song Shaking for Eddie Money. Come on. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> sh sh she was shaking. <laughs> yeah. God bless Eddie Money. Yeah. All right. Let's listen to track number six. This one is Hitch a Ride. Wow. Wow. See that clarity. You didn't hear clarity like this before this record, uh, this so these sounds. Smoke like water runs inside. Still out of the trees. 
So even on this this kind of more mellow song, they still get into that you know that solo part with the the riff again. Um, they originally titled this song "San Francisco Day," and again, Tom Schultz played it in different variations throughout the years, and then eventually reworked it into "Hitch a Ride" for the Boston album. Yeah, you know, so I'm going to take you back to 1977, right? And I I'm thinking about it now. I couldn't categorize this, right? I'm trying mm -hmm. to think about it when I'm listening to this music. Uh, I can tell you where I was at and why you know, Boston just wasn't in, wasn't a part of my music. This whole, you know, Aerosmith, yes, right? But during this time, you know, I, in my, this was my senior in high school. You had Queen rocking right. it at that time, right. right? Black Sabbath still rocking it. Ted Nugent took over my life back in those days, you know? So I can see how this is, where would you categorize Boston, you know, as in the yeah. rock and roll scheme of things, right? I, you know, it's pretty, it's, it's pretty middle of the road. It was, you know, it was, it, anytime you get something that's that popular, it, it's way more accessible and, and broad. So, you know, like you say, like when we talk about like Ramones and stuff, the right. Ramones were hugely popular, but for a small number of people, the Ramones never made any money really touring. I mean, they made some money in Europe, but here, I mean, you know, the, the Ramones played a, at small clubs. They never oh. played even theaters or anything. Dude, at the peak, I was seeing them down the shore. <laughs> yeah, right. You used to see the Ramones peak. at bars. I think, <laughs> bars. They, I think they even played the, I think the Ramones even played the Wayne Firehouse at one point. Like when uh, they were, you know, I mean, stuff like that. So. Yeah. When you get into, I think the, my point is that like sometimes the best music isn't uh, understood by everybody. You know, it's not as accessible to everybody. And this this stuff was super accessible. It, I think the thing is, it's a mix of, of rock. So there's a bit of an edge to it, but it's not like Black Sabbath. So where, you know, <laughs> yeah. so it's not scary to people. And they, we talked about this with Bowie. So the whole androgyny, it's the gay thing, the straight thing, the, you know, the space alien, there's all this weird stuff and people are afraid of that at first. Yeah. And so this stuff is, this is very middle of the road, but I love it. I mean, it's no. still a great, great record. The music's great, and I guess the phrase that would fit it best is like catchy, you know. And, and yeah, super thing. catchy. Yeah, yeah. And you know the combination, and that's what helps it so much is that it is catchy. The riffs are catchy. They're quick. They're to the point. The solos are very melodic. It they don't wander off into Never Never Land. They stick along the melody line. The the riffs are very accessible. The songs are not about anything threatening. It's not even like an ACDC where they're, you know, talking about groupies and stuff. It's very middle of the road. I had a dream about this girl I used to know, you know, kind of stuff. Uh, it just hit me. It's catchy, but you could still turn it up in your room and rock out. How's that? Yeah, you know right. I mean? It's a, it's the rock without the danger, without the threat, you know. So it's it's good boy rock and roll. <laughs> you know, it's no like you like it. 
Yeah, right, exactly. But it's like, it, you look boy. at like like an Aerosmith. Aerosmith yeah. were yep. like, you know, the, their attitude was bad boys. It's like the Rolling yeah. Stones, Aerosmith were bad boys. These guys are, it's very, you know, middle of the road, which I'm fine with. I think it's no. a, a fantastic record. Oh, the music is amazing, fantastic. But like you said, it's, the, it's a different energy. You're bringing oh, yeah. a different energy than Yarrow Smith or a Ted Nugent. Sure. Look at the name. Look at so you can see where I was at. I just mentioned Ted Nugent, Black Sabbath, and Aerosmith. You know, there's a lot right. of stuff going on. Right, and that's all stuff that scared your parents. You know, <laughs> Boston didn't scare them so much. You know, <laughs> how do you like this, mommy? Yeah. All right, so let's listen yeah. to track number seven. This is Something About You. And they like these kind of fade-in type beginnings. Yeah. So uh, this song, and it, you know, that's why one, and it's not really a complaint, but the one thing about this record is that a lot of the songs are very similar. Yeah, I was just going to say, you know, when I would have never thought about the album, and this is why it's great that we do inside the album, because I get here and we can share this. You know, they took a systematic approach to songwriting and, and creating these songs. Yeah. Literally systematic. What would sound good here? What would sound right. good here? What, right. you know? Because I, I was just thinking about it. I watched an interview with Brad Whitford and Joe Perry one time, and they would stand across from each other and just start riffing, right? And the next thing you know, it became a song. Right. That's <laughs> not happening with these guys. This is, like we said, this is an engineer mind planned out, you know? It's all thought out. Uh, yeah, but this, this, one, this one was originally titled Life Isn't Easy. And it was written in 1975, and it was the last demo track that they wrote. And so, you know, they put it on here on the second to last uh, track on the album. It's a good um, song. Yeah, they're all super catchy, but it, it definitely, they all follow the same kind of model. You know, it, yeah. there's not a lot of variance here. All right, so let's listen to the album Closer. This is number eight, and this one is uh, Let Me Take You Home Tonight. So this one is kind of, you know, this is the real mellow 70s. Reminds me a little bit of Pure Prairie League. <laughs> the beginning of the song to me was a little bit of the riff was a little Rod Stewart-ish. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. yeah. So in the 70s, pickup lines were big. And so this is, you know, kind of a pickup line type thing. Um, it, this is the song that they recorded in Los Angeles. And Brad Delp wrote it, 
So they went out to LA and the band recorded this. Tom Schultz stayed in Boston and kept working on the rest of the album. So this is kind of the, you know, the smokescreen song that they did for the record company. And, you know, they put it here on the end of the record. And to me, this one is, it's okay, but it's uh, not my favorite song on the album. Thanks. I'll leave it there. (laughs) (laughs) But I'd love to hear your favorite pickup line. (laughs) I never had a pickup line. It was so It's funny. We were just talking about that. Day somewhere. <laughs> yeah, me neither. Could Too you, funny. Could you, could you help me find my way to my car? <laughs> Was that your pickup line? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> could you take nice. my keys, please? <laughs> so that's Boston by Boston. Hey. Hope you enjoyed it. Um, next week, we are going to do the first record from The Pretenders. So that'll be a little uh, bit different than this one. <laughs> Yeah, let me tell you, I look forward to that, man. Yeah, that's that's one of my all-time, all-time favorite albums and so, so good. Um, and, you know, it was one of those great albums that kind of brought punk out into the mainstream almost, you know? Not quite all the way, but... Yeah, a lot of great stories behind that album. I look forward to sharing them and talking about it. All right. Well, that was thanks, great. thanks everybody for listening and watching, and we'll see you next week on Inside the Album. Thank you, everyone. <laughs>